Please open your Bibles with me to John 21. John chapter 21. It's good to see faces who have not been with us for uh, the holiday uh, season of Thanksgiving back with us this morning. Welcome everyone back who's been traveling and we thank the Lord for safety and travels. We'll be looking at um, the verses, verses 1 through 21 this morning in John 21. For the past eight weeks, we've been looking at the miracles of Jesus. And today we come to um, the last of the miracles that we will look at. And it happens to be the last miracle that Jesus uh, performed in his earthly ministry. It's number 37 of 37. And John calls uh, the miracles of his gospel uh, signs. Uh, Signs point to something. If you came in the driveway this morning, there was a sign pointing to Providence Church. It showed you the way to get to Providence Church. And John signs these miracles that he calls signs. uh, They were to point us to Christ, that uh, Christ is the Messiah, the Son of God. He is God himself. And these signs call us to believe on him. And John picks seven of these miracles, seven of the 37, to to demonstrate Jesus' divine authority and and Jesus' power. Uh, We have looked at a number of the ones that are actually in John. Um, In chapter 2, we began eight eight weeks ago with the first miracle of Jesus in, in John 2. It was the uh, Jesus turned the water into wine, as you may recall, and where we read there in, in verse 11 that he manifested his glory and the disciples believed in him. That was the purpose of these signs. In chapter 5, he, he heals the uh, invalid on the Sabbath and the Jews wanted to kill him. Why? Well, not simply because he was healing on a Sabbath, but Uh, We are told that he was even calling God his own father, making him himself equal with God. These signs point to Jesus as as being God in chapter 6 of John. He feeds the 5,000 men plus the women and, and the children. And then he goes on to say in the next chapter, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall not thirst he said, I am the light of the world. And then he proceeds to heal a blind man and bring, uh, bring light to the eyes of one who could not see. But this last miracle, chapter 21, is different. All of those others, this is the eighth in John, and all of the seven actually come in the first half of the Gospel of John, and they're called signs, but, but this eighth miracle is, is different. It is It is not called a sign in John. There's something different about it. The question is, what is different about it, and and why is it here? See, the the disciples had gone fishing. They didn't catch anything that night, and Jesus gives them a large catch. We're told they weren't even able to bring the haul in, 153 fish. No one else sees this miracle. So what is its purpose? The disciples, they had already believed that Jesus is Messiah. They had, they had uh, witnessed the resurrection. They had been there at the crucifixion. They saw Jesus post-resurrection. 
So what is the purpose of this miracle that is not called a, a sign? It, it's almost anticlimactic in, verse, in chapter 21 that Jesus would perform this miracle. In fact, if we read the end of chapter 20, it brings John to a, a very logical conclusion. If you look in verse 30 of chapter 20, it says, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Jesus did many other miracles. He did at least 29 other miracles besides the seven in John. Uh, but John chose these seven. Why? So that we may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, Son of God, and have life in his name. Now, if we were watching the Gospel of John as a movie, at that point, the screen would go blank, the credits would roll, and that would be the end. We would all, you know, take our popcorn boxes out and, and walk out the door and we would leave. Because of this, because it seems like such a good place to end the Gospel of John, some commentators say that John chapter 21 was added later. Or possibly it wasn't even written by John. Well, I would like to suggest that it is, it is, it is written by John. It's, it's not an appendix to the Gospel of John. It is perhaps an epilogue to the movie itself. You know, John has a prologue. John chapter 1, verses 1 through 14 is really a prologue of the Gospel. He says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him. Without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. He goes on and says, The true life which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through Him, yet the world did not know Him. He came to His own did not receive him. And he goes on in verse 14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, the glory of the only Son of the Father. And he ends that no one has ever seen God, only God, only, the only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. And then he begins in verse 19 with the story. So we have a, a prologue, and, and John seems to give us a, a good symmetrical uh, book here, or, or a gospel, when he gives us an epilogue, an epilogue to the gospel of John. Chapter 1, if you look at the whole chapter, you'll see that, that uh, in chapter 1, Jesus calls the disciples, and in chapter 21, reaffirms their call. Chapter 21 is, is really tied also to chapter 20. We're told in verse 14 that this is the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples. Well, in chapter 22, or, or chapter 20, we have the two other times that Jesus was, um, that Jesus appeared to the disciples after, after the resurrection is the third one. So what does it add? 
What does it add to the gospel of John, and what does it, what does it have for us? Well, one thing we could say about it is that it, it ties up some, some sins, some things that, that were not really clear after chapter, 20, 22, after chapter 21. For example, in John chapter 18, verse 25, John chapter 18, verse 25 says, Now Simon Peter was standing and warming himself. Where was this? This was before the crucifixion. So they said to him, you also are not one of his disciples, are you? And he denied it. I am not. Well, if that is the last thing we hear about Peter, and then we go to Acts chapter 1, verse 15, in those days Peter stood up among the brothers. Um, the company of persons was about 100. Brothers, the scripture has been fulfilled. I'm thinking if I'm one of the other disciples, Peter, why are you the one saying this? Why are you the one assuming leadership after you denied Jesus? Well, then in chapter 2 of, of Acts, verse 22, verse 22 of, of chap, chapter 2 of Acts, men of Israel, this is Peter, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs, that God did through him in your midst, as you yourself know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and the foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed at the hands of lawless men. Where did Peter get that? Where did he get the, the boldness to say those words? Well, if we did not have John chapter 21, we would not know that, would we? Because in John chapter 21, uh, verses uh, 15 through 17, Jesus reinstates Peter as the leader of the apostles. He says to Peter three times, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? Just like Peter denied him three times. And he says, feed my lambs, feed my sheep. Peter was hurt the third time. And he says, Lord, you know that I love you. If we did not have John 23 tying up that loose end for us, we would not have any way to connect Peter's denial Christ to now Peter standing up boldly leading the disciples in the book of Acts. So that's one of the, the values of chapter 21. It doesn't give more evidence to believe, but it answers the question at the conclusion of chapter 20. And what is that? At the end of chapter 20, what, is, what does he say? These things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and by believing, you may have life in his name. What does life in his name look like? It's not believing, but it's now life in his name. What does the life of a Christian who believes in Jesus look like? What does Christian life look like? And I would suggest that this miracle is... It's not just an afterthought. It's not something that was added. This miracle in all of chapter 21 is to show the disciples what having life in his name looks like. They believed. They already believed. They lived through the crucifixion. They saw Jesus after the, res after the resurrection. He has commissioned them to be ambassadors of the gospel. But 
What does that look like? What does life look like going forward without Jesus' physical presence with them? So John, just like he's done before, he gives us a story. He's giving us a miracle. And every miracle has a principle behind the miracle. So what is the purpose? What is the, the principle of this miracle? And it is, it is this, to answer the question, what is life like after Christ? What is the purpose of the fishing story? And in the miracle of the fishing story, John illustrates three characteristics of the life lived in the name of Jesus Christ. The Christian life is a life of dependence on Jesus. The Christian life is a life of obedience to Jesus. And the Christian life is a relationship with Jesus. He's going to show all three of those things that if you are living a Christian life, you will be a dependent person on Jesus, you will be an obedient person on Jesus, and you will have a relationship with Jesus. So let's look at those. The Christian life, first of all, is a life of dependence on Jesus. If you've heard sermons on chapter 21 of John, read commentaries, you will know that it usually does not begin well for the disciples. This is often told as a story of sin. The disciples are sinning, so they, they get no fish. They obey, they get, they get fish. It's told as, as um, a story of disobedience, even a story of apostasy, because they have gone back to their old way of life to learn uh, to continue what they have learned when they were kids, to continue their, their employment as fishermen. They've already abandoned what Jesus has called them to. And the apostles get raked over the cold time and time again because they are fishing. After all, why are they in Galilee? They're running away, obviously. They were in Jerusalem. Things were difficult, so they went to Galilee. Well, is that true? Or did Jesus mention that they should go there? He says in Matthew chapter 28, verse 16, that, that you are to go to Galilee, to the mountain, to a certain mountain, and wait for me. Well, they were on the mountain, they're fishing. So they disobeyed Jesus. Well, we, we can read there are seven of the disciples here. There are four missing. Perhaps the other four were waiting on the mountain. If Jesus comes, they're going to come. Why do we assume that they are disobeying Jesus. Well, Peter's leading them, and he denied Christ. He denied Christ three times. Suspect leader, suspect advice, it doesn't look good. Well, Jesus doesn't condemn Peter. He actually restores Peter. Well, they're fishing at night. Mm-hmm. They didn't want anybody to know they're fishing. You know, my brothers, I was, a, I was the youngest in our, in our family. I always wanted to go fishing with my brothers, and occasionally they'd take me during the daytime, but when they went night fishing, they wouldn't take me. I think my mom actually wouldn't let them take me. But I don't know, what are they doing out there at night? <laughs> They're fishing at night. There's clandestine kind of fishing. Well, if we read in Luke chapter 5, verse 5, we'll find out that the disciples had been fishing at night before when Jesus was there. And they said, we've been fishing all night and we've caught nothing, but at your advice, we'll cast the net on the other side. Fishing is actually one of the best times 
to catch fish. Yeah, but they caught nothing. That's obviously a case of disobedience. They didn't even recognize Jesus. That doesn't sound good. Some sort of spiritual blindness, obviously. Or was it the fact that it was just dawn, it was dark, and they were 100 yards away? And perhaps the resurrected body, anyone who saw Jesus, if you read the story of Jesus after the resurrection, they had, they had issues recognizing Jesus. You know, the body was somehow different. It, he could eat fish, but he could also go through walls. So there was something a little bit different about that resurrected body. The text only says of Peter, I'm going fishing. I'm going fishing, and they reply, we'll go with you. I think to accuse the disciples of, of gross sin here, of, of leaving the faith or being disobedient, it's a bit of a strain to the text to, to say that. So what was going on? Well, maybe we could call it active waiting. F.F. Bruce, who was a well-known commentator, he he simply said this, it is better for Peter to employ his time usefully than to remain idle. Another theologian said, Even though Jesus was crucified and risen from the dead, the disciples still need to eat. And so perhaps they just went fishing. And the story centers around this one revelation of Jesus. Verse 1 is after Jesus revealed himself again. You may have a translation that says Jesus manifests himself again. It is a a revelation of Jesus. A manifestation is is simply, it's defined as an object or or an action or an event that, that shows something. It defines something. And in the Bible, a manifestation is usually a manifestation of of God's power or of God's purpose. Now, just think, they they had been in Jerusalem. They returned from Jerusalem back to their home, back to Galilee, Sea of Tiberias, uh, sea of Gisenaret. They're, they're all the same thing. Tiberius was just the Roman name. So they, they're back in Galilee. They're uh, along the Sea of Galilee, and there's a manifestation. They're at home. Jesus appears to them. He reveals himself to them. And this happens throughout, throughout the Gospels and throughout John especially. In chapter 1, verse, verse 31, we're told that the purpose of John the Baptist was to reveal Jesus. In chapter 2, verse 11, the, the water turned to wine. We're told the first sign, it revealed the glory of God. In chapter 16, verse 6, Jesus is praying, or 17, verse 6, Jesus is praying to the Father, and he says, I have revealed your name to them. Revealing the name means I have revealed you. I have showed them what you look like. The cross, of course, the exaltation of Jesus on the cross, was the, that was the climax of the revelation of Jesus and, and who he is. And there's one more revealing, and it happens here at the Lake of Galilee. So what will this reveal about Jesus to the disciples? If this is not about sin, if this is, if this is not about sin, 
what's going on with the disciples? Well, they had just returned home. They, to say they'd been in a difficult and confusing time would be uh, an understatement, I think, to, to say the least. In, in chapters 14 through 16, just teaching from Jesus and instructions more than they could digest in their, in their minds, more than they can wrap their heads around. If they had any hope of an outward kingdom, it was totally shattered. One of their own betrayed Jesus. Every one of them denied and deserted Jesus during the, resurrect, during the crucifixion. In a matter of hours, they went from being the disciples of this honored teacher to being dissenters among Judaism. They witnessed the shocking appearance of the resurrected Christ. Now they're back home. The mountains along the west and the north and the east side of, of the lake. The sounds of the boats going out in the morning. The breeze coming off the lake. The familiar smells of fish. Was all of that that happened before real? Have you ever been on a vacation or a mission trip or someplace and you come home and it's like you've been taken out of it and you wonder... Did I really experience what I just experienced? Was it real? Is Jesus, when will Jesus come? There could have been a danger of, of forgetting their calling in the comfort of their familiar surroundings, just like uh, new believers. If you're a new believer and, and you come out of a, a bad situation and you go back and hang out with the same people and you go to the same clubs or do whatever you used to do, there's a real danger of falling back into that lifestyle. But the revelation of Jesus was not a rebuke of sin. It was a call to a, a new reality. And the reality is this. Without me, you can do nothing. In verse 4, they did not know who Jesus was. He, it was gone hundred yards away, um, they had worked all night, probably tired. Verse 5, Jesus doesn't say to them, what are you doing fishing? I commanded you to go to the mountain, and why are you fishing, you sinners? He didn't say that. What did he say? He said, children. It's an interesting word. It's just, a, it's like saying, hey guys. It's hard for us in English because we don't really have that. Uh, the Russians have it. They use a word for child, and, and then if they're some of their buddies, we might say, hey, buddies. Uh, they, they'll say the plural of that word, and it's just say, hey, guys. And he says in kind of a negative way, have you not caught anything? And they simply say, no. Try the right side. Jesus, there's a big school of fish there on the right side, just like he did in in Luke chapter 5, Luke chapter 5, another similar story, different, different situation, but similar story. When they had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out in the deep and let us go uh, and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon said, Master, we toiled all night and took, and took nothing, but at your word I will let down the nets. And when he had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish and the nets were breaking. 
This is a familiar story for this is something that has happened. Happened before, and Jesus is reaffirming their call. He had called them earlier to be fishers of men. And he's calling them back to that calling. Why listen to him? Either they had a suspicion. You know, this is, this is really weird. This has kind of happened before. This happened before, uh, way back early in the ministry. Or it was just desperation. There is just a desperate toss. Maybe, let's just listen to this guy. Maybe, maybe we'll catch some fish. Maybe he knows something we don't. But in verse 7, John says, this is the Lord. After he'd given him fish, he probably caught Peter's eye. And, you know, here it's hard to know the, the um, stress on, on this. Did he, say, did he say, it's the Lord? Or did he say, it is the Lord? Was there a wondering, is this, is this the Lord as they caught the fish? And then, and then John says, it is the Lord. Either way, Peter knew it, and he threw himself on a 100-yard swim. That's, that's not bad uh, for a fisherman. A 100-yard swim, and he brings ashore later 300 pounds of fish. Why did I say 300? Well, there are 153 fish, and these were large fish, and those fish there are two pounds as large for a fish there. It could have been 300 pounds of fish that Peter pulls up onto the shore by himself. Peter was, Peter was a, a pretty good, a pretty strong guy. But this revelation of Jesus, it's no longer in Jerusalem. It's in Galilee. It's in their home. No longer unusual circumstances, but they're fishing. This isn't a dream. The risen Jesus demonstrated his, his power in their home, in the familiar Galilee. There's no doubt Jesus is with them again. And the reality of the resurrection now fits into something they know. It fits into their normal life. So what is the lesson? The lesson is this, that the Christian life is a life of dependence on God. Without me, you can do nothing. John chapter 5 was, was the same thing. They didn't catch any fish, but Jesus says, throw it over here and you'll catch you see, it was only when Jesus intervened and only when they admitted that, that they had nothing, that they couldn't catch any fish on their own, that Jesus gave them 153 fish. What's the application here? The application is simply this. How, how dependent am I on Jesus? How dependent are you on Jesus? I mean, really. I mean, when I look at my, my prayer life, when do I pray earnestly? When do I pray uh, for earnest dependence on Jesus? It's usually after I have tried everything I can on my own to fix my own problem. And Jesus wants us to learn dependence in our daily life, in our, in our comfort zone. In our families, Jesus is showing the disciples that they don't have the resources to do life. And just like prayer, the gospel only makes sense when we realize we don't have it all together. The prayer of repentance is a prayer 
of dependence on Jesus. You know, when I look at my life and I, I think of the, the spiritual warriors in my life, those, those men and women I consider more mature than anyone else I know, it, it's usually the case that they are a bit older. They've been in the faith a longer period of time. And what, we, what they find out is that the holier one gets, the holier you become, the less holy you feel. And so the older you get, the more dependent you feel on Jesus. And I think it, the reason that happens is because the older you get, the less you care about pride and the less you care about what other people think about you. And you concentrate your life on Jesus and you say, God, if you don't help me, Jesus, if you don't, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to blow it. I'm going to blow it with my kids. I'm going to blow it with my boss. I'm going to blow it with my spouse. I am totally dependent on you. And God has promised his grace to the humble. Martin Luther said this, God has promised his grace to the humble, that is, to those who mourn over and despair of themselves. But a man cannot be thoroughly humbled till he realizes that his salvation is utterly beyond his own powers, counsels, efforts, will, and works, and depends absolutely on the will, counsel, pleasure, and works of another, God alone. You know, Johnny Erickson Tata, uh, you know, most of you know her. She, she was in a severe accident, became a quadriplegic uh, in, a, in a wheelchair most of her life. She said this, maybe the truly handicapped people are the ones that don't need God as much. Maybe the truly handicapped people are the ones that don't need God as much. How much do you need God? How dependent on God are you? Well, not only is Christian life a life of dependence, it's a life of obedience. This is, uh, seems obvious in, in um, this passage. that Jesus gives what seems like nonsensical instructions to the disciples uh, in verse 6. Uh, verse 6 said, cast your net on the right side of the boat and you'll find some. So they did it. Cast your net on the right side. I think the principle here comes from Proverbs. It trusts in the Lord with all your heart, lead not your own understanding. That is, it is um, wise to be obedient to someone who is wiser than yourself than to rely on your own wisdom. It is wiser to listen to someone who is wiser than you are in your life. Because if like many boats, um, you know, if you read about fishing that area, the, the steering mechanism was on the right side of the boat. That's why they usually cast on the left side of the boat. But Jesus says, cast on, on the right side. And they did. It would have been more difficult. But they did it anyway. And the story points to a second lesson, that obedience is involved in discipleship. Cast your nets on the right side. Did they have an inclination this was Jesus? We don't know that. Perhaps they did, perhaps not. Perhaps John is just giving us a lesson that the readers would have known about. The readers would have known this is Jesus. But whatever he's saying is 
the Christian life is a life of obedience to Jesus. And if Jesus, Jesus himself said, if you love me, you will do what? You will obey my commandments. Look at the life of these disciples in, in the book of Acts. Peter is going to need these lessons. Dependence, obedience, he's going to need these. Uh, when, he is, when he comes into the book of Acts, you know, Jesus says, do you love me? Feed my, feed my sheep. Do you love me? Feed my lambs. He's going to actually obey him and do that. And that's going to cause persecution in his life. It's going to cause beatings in his life. It's going to cause jail in his life. It's going to cause him to live his life as a martyr who's crucified and under, the Roman, uh, under the Roman power in, in the city of Rome, crucified upside down as he watches his wife be crucified herself. Obedience. They were dependent on Jesus for their next breath. They were obedient to Jesus to their last breath. Certainty in the midst of uncertainty. Those who are dependent, those who are obedient, they have certainty in their faith even when things are uncertain. You know, a little faith says, uh, I think Jesus is going to do it. I hope he's going to do it. Big faith says, Jesus has already done it. Eric Little, who's missionary to China, said this, it's willingness to know, but willingness to do God's will that brings certainty. The question is, how willing are we to obey Jesus in our life? How willing are we to resist the temptations that come in our life. We need to pray for uh, dependence even as we think of temptation in our life that, that God would give us the strength to withstand. Finally, Christian life is a life of relationship with Jesus. Jesus invites them to breakfast. There's a charcoal fire. He's got a fish on the fire. I wonder if that charcoal fire reminded Peter that night that he betrayed Jesus when he was standing around the fire warming himself. And he betrayed Jesus for the third time and Jesus was across the, across the yard. And I imagine Jesus caught Peter's eye because it says G Peter was devastated by that. There's a charcoal fire. I, nothing in here says it reminded Peter. But it is interesting that Jesus reinstates Peter right after this. But Jesus in the flesh, before his crucifixion, what did he do with the disciples? Remember, the last time he was with them, he washed their feet. And now Jesus meets them in Galilee. And what is he doing? He's cooking them breakfast. He's still serving them. He's still caring for them. In verse 11, Peter hauls the fish and John counts them. 153 fish. Now, don't get too excited about that number. There are a lot of speculations about what, what that is. Uh, some, some really out there. Fishermen count fish. If you've been fishing, you got a half a boatload of fish. You want to know how many you've counted so you can tell everybody how many fish you caught. Maybe they had to divide them among the disciples so they could sell the fish. There's 153 fish. It's just a lot of fish. There are a lot of fish. 
if there's any symbolism here, it's that the net didn't break. And we could say, you know, this is the gospel net. And, and uh, in John, it says Jesus draws those he calls to himself. And it's actually the word for pulling in your net. The gospel net never breaks. That would be a better analogy than figuring out something for the number 153. The point is, personal relationship is still possible with Jesus after the resurrection for the disciples. He invites them to breakfast. He invites us, doesn't he? He says, come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Personal relationship is still possible. It's interesting, though. They, it was kind of an awkward meeting. They wanted to ask Jesus, who are you? And you, you, we wonder, what was that? Uh, personally, I think it had something to do with the, the resurrected body. But they dare not ask him. Why? Because they knew it was him. may not have been, may have been something a little bit different than, than the pre-crucified Christ, but they knew it was him. You know, this kind of fits with what's going on in their mind, doesn't it? You know, they know this is Jesus. They know this is him, but they're still hesitant. They're still uncertain. They want to ask, is this really you? But they dare not. It's hard to put ourselves in the disciples' uh, shoes or in their sandals. You know, to us, the crucifixion is so clear, and Jesus' identity is so clear. It was also clear to the disciples, but for them to wrap their head around it. They believe he rose from the dead. They knew this was Jesus, but a resurrected Messiah? Not what they expected. Struggling with the, the strangeness of that. They knew it. They still felt unease about it. They suppressed the question to ask if this is really you. Therefore, when Jesus gave them the bread... He wasn't giving them the bread and the fish to show them, you know, this is my physical body, I can eat fish. They knew that. He had done that before. He is reassuring them. He's saying he meets their physical needs. He, he serves them just like he did before the resurrection. He's allowing them to adjust to the new reality. What is that new reality? The new reality is that Jesus' presence will continue with them. His power will continue to be with them as they carry out the mission that he's given to them, but without his physical presence. And he reassures them of his presence, even in his physical absence. Relationship with Jesus is possible because Jesus invites them to have a relationship with him. You know, you don't experience Jesus. You know, there's a book called Experiencing God, and um, it, it's a little mystical. And we turn this into, you know, when I was a teenager, our teen choir used to sing, Jesus, 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 there's something about that name. You couldn't really describe what's about that name. There's just something about that name. It was kind of, well, that's not Jesus. To get to know Jesus... You get to know him through his word and you get to know him and you submit to him because his commands are in the word and you enjoy him and you have a relationship with him and that relationship with him is possible thanks to the cross. 
Timothy Keller said this, the determining factor of our relationship with God is not our past, but Christ's past. It's not what you have done or what you've not done. It's what Christ did for you. John chapter 15. And we'll close with, with this. Verse 5. Kind of sums up this for us. It says, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me you can do nothing. For anyone does... If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you abide in me, if you have a relationship with me, and my word abides in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples." And as the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide with me. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. Dependence, obedience, relationship. The lesson is that you're not alone. In John 14, Jesus said this, verse 18, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Yet in a little while the world will not see me no will see me no more. But you will see me. Because I live, you also live. In that day you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. Whomever has my commandments and keeps them. He it is who loves me. He it is who has a relationship with me. Whatever we do in this life is to be done in dependence on the resurrected Messiah. It's to be done in obedience to the resurrected Messiah. And it is to be done in relationship with the resurrected Messiah. Whatever we do in life, fishermen, Boss of my own business, carpenter, teacher, salesman, mother. We do it for the glory of Christ with joy to win others to Christ. And why do we do it? Because of the words of Paul in 2 Corinthians 5, verses 14 and 15. For the love of Christ controls us because we concluded this. That one died for all, therefore all have died. And he who died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised to life.